Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Thank you so much for joining us, us wherever you are in the world right now. I'm so excited about my guest today, Dr. Jim B. Tucker. Dr. Jim B. Tucker is a world-recognized authority on reincarnation research, in particular children's memories of previous lives. Dr. Tucker is a Bona Lowry Professor of Psychiatry and Neural Behavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. He is Director of the UVA Division of Perceptual Studies, where he is continuing the work of Dr. Ian Stevenson with children who report memories of previous lives. A board-certified psychiatrist, Dr. Tucker worked with Dr. Stevenson for several years before taking over the research upon Dr. Stevenson's retirement in 2002. Dr. Tucker has spoken before scientific and general audiences and has made a number of television appearances, including Good Morning America, Larry King Live, and CBS Sunday Morning. His most recent book has just been published before children's memories of previous lives. This is his story and this is his passion. Dr. Jim Tucker, welcome to Passion Harvest. Thanks very much for having me. I'm I'm so honoured that you're here today. Um, I guess for those who maybe don't know, if you don't mind explaining, what is reincarnation? Well, that's a uh, I know. question. In, uh, I know, in the concept of time and in simple terms. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's a term that I don't necessarily use a whole mm-hmm. lot just because it has a lot of connotations related to religious connotations that aren't necessarily a part of our work. So, you know, reincarnation is the idea that there is this um, rebirth that somebody lives and dies and then comes back again in a new life. Uh, what we look at is um, hundreds of cases of, of young children who report memories of a past life, and, and often their memories can be verified. So it, it certainly, reincarnation is kind of an obvious way of explaining that, but there are other possibilities. But it, it does, so I speak of memories of, of previous lives sort of more so than, than the overall term reincarnation. Very interesting. I'm just, I, I'm going to cut this out, but Maria's just entered the waiting room. Are you happy that I admit okay. her? Yeah, sure. Okay. Lucky it's not live. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just wait till she connects. Hi, Maria. Hi, Hi Maria. Hello. Okay, we, we, we've already started. Oh, okay. Well, I will... Uh... I will be on mute and I'll turn off my video. I'll just be here. Oh, to- you can leave your video on. That's that's up to you. Okay. Only because, yeah, it's sound activated. So you might want to put it on mute. Okay. So, okay. So where were, so <laughs> I forgot where what we were talking about past life. Oh, reincarnation. Memories. The term reincarnation. reincarnation. Yeah. yeah. 
It's fascinating with children's uh, memories of past lives. What uh, I mean, I know you detail quite a lot in your book, but what are your one or two most interesting cases that are highlighted for you? Yeah, well, the um, probably the best known American case is, is a little boy named James Leininger. He's not little anymore, but he, he around the time of his second birthday, he started having horrible nightmares multiple times a week in which he would be kicking his legs up in the air and screaming, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. And during the day, he would take his toy airplanes and repeatedly bang them into the family's coffee table, uh, saying airplane crash on fire. Uh, So he looked like a kid who had been traumatized, uh, but he hadn't been through any trauma, at least in this life. But his parents were able to talk with him about this material um, several times while he was awake. And he said how he had been a pilot who his plane had been shot down by the Japanese and um, seemed to be describing an American pilot from World War II. Um, His parents asked him one time, um, well, he said how he had flown off of a boat and his parents asked him the name of the boat and he said Natoma. And it turns out that there was this U.S. aircraft carrier stationed in the Pacific during World War II named the USS Natoma Bay. Um, They also asked him one time, well, they asked him what his name was then, and he would always just say me or James. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they asked him one time who else was there, and he said Jack Larson. And this was all when he was two. And then when he was, uh, uh, yes, I mean, that in and of itself is is amazing. Uh, Then when he was two and a half, he pointed to a picture of Iwo Jima and said that's where his plane had been shot down. Uh, And he also described the details of the plane being shot down, how it got uh, shot in the engine, uh, crashed in the water, and and quickly sank. Well, eventually, um, his father initially was quite opposed to the idea of past lives, even after James started describing one. He started looking into things basically to be able to show that there's nothing to what James was saying. But in fact, he eventually found out that uh, this USS Natoma Bay, uh, they did take part in the Iwo Jima operation and they lost one and only one pilot then, uh, a young man named James Houston. So um, when James was saying he was James, well, that was James Houston. Uh, and all the details fit. So Houston uh, was uh, a pilot on this Natoma Uh, He was shot down by the Japanese. The details of how his plane got shot down matched perfectly uh, with what James said. And uh, Jack Larson was the name of the pilot in the uh, plane next to Houston's on the day that he was killed. Um, So, you know, this was a guy who had been um, shot down and killed um, 50 years before James Leininger was born. And it seemed impossible that James could have learned about that through some sort of ordinary means. And and yet he had not just the memories, but also the intense emotional kind of reaction to it, this kind of traumatized reaction uh, that was then showing up um, in this little boy. 
And how do you work through that trauma for a child to experience their own, well, potentially experienced his own death and the trauma from a previous life? Perhaps that's what, I mean, I'm answering questions, but perhaps that's why we don't necessarily remember all our lives. It's, it's sometimes too much, especially for a young child. Well, that's right. I mean, I think it's a good thing that we don't all remember multiple past lives. I mean, it can be hard enough to deal with you know, the things in this life. Um, I think as far as how to deal with it, um, it can be challenging, but for most of the cases, the children stop talking about the past life by the time they're school age and, and seem to just go on with their lives. Um, before that, you know, they can be quite persistent and upset about their past life. They, they may be crying and, and talking about missing their previous family uh, on a daily basis. And in that case, it can be helpful for the parents to be open to what the child is saying and say, well, these things may have happened before, uh, but now you're safe with us in this life and we're going to make sure that everybody stays safe. Uh, so it, it's respecting their statements, but also trying to place them in the past. Uh, and sometimes the children will visit the previous place and, and that helps with both of those. It, it, they see that their memories are valid um, if they meet the previous family, but they also see that those individuals have, have gone on and, and that what they're remembering really was in the past. Um, in James's case, I mean, he did stop talking about these things and kind of went on with his life, but he's now a young adult. And pretty much the only thing he remembers now, unfortunately, is just the terror of knowing that he was about to die, you know, of this pilot preparing to crash and, and be killed. Uh, I, I talked with him recently and I asked about any near-death experience kinds yeah. of memories, you know, any positive things of floating up. Or I was just about to light. ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, no, the only thing he remembers was his, his the terrible final moments. Um, but I mean, he's going on and, you know, having a productive life, but it, it's, it's unfortunate that he uh, is still um, living with that. You certainly are so passionate about this subject. Mm. I, I'm passionate about this subject too. You talk about your criteria for doing research on past life memories of children. What are the criteria? Yeah. Well, the main thing we're looking at is can the child's memories be verified or can the child's statements be verified? Do they match the life of, of a deceased person from the past? Uh, and if so, could the child learn those things through ordinary means. And again, in a case like James Leininger's, we can be sure that he didn't. There are other cases where a child talks about somebody from the same town or even the same family. And, and then of course, there's always the question of, of how the child learned that information. Um, but as far as the criteria to even include a case to register it, mm -hmm. um, we do register unverified cases. So what we call unsolved cases. So sometimes a child may talk about past life with great emotion and in great detail, but if they don't give the right details, like the name of the person or the place, uh, then often it can't be verified. Um, but along with the statements, we look at the behaviors. I mean, I just mentioned James's. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can get fears, you can get a lot of uh, behaviors often in the child's play that seem connected with the previous life. Uh, so in James's case, sort of a fascination with planes. Um, some of them also will um, 
and we may get into this more later, but have birthmarks or, or even birth defects that seem to match wounds the previous person suffered. Um, and so we, we look at all these factors, uh, whether the uh, sometimes the past life will be predicted either by the previous person, although that doesn't happen very often, but the uh, parents, usually the mother will start having dreams about the previous person asking to be reborn to them. Uh, that's another feature Gosh. we see. Um, so all of this can, can go into uh, being part of the case. Um, just in regards to past life, you really can only do research, what, for the last 200 years or so. You can't certainly verify much detail. I, I don't know, do you have a limit, a time limit where research can be done, really? Well, we don't have a firm limit, but you're right. I mean, Unless it's a fairly modern life, it's almost impossible to verify. Now, you know, if somebody says that they were Cleopatra, well, I mean, you, you know, there was Cleopatra, but yes. as far as being able to verify uh, the, that you think the person actually had that life, you know, it's fairly impossible. Um, so even, I mean, James Houston, the James Houston, James Langer case, you know, which was from the 1940s, um, that's much longer than most of our cases, partly because it gets so hard to verify them. Mm. Uh, and in the Asian cases where Ian Stevenson, my mentor, started, there weren't records uh, often like there are here. So it, it had to be fairly recent for people to be able to, to have memories or, you know, sometimes records for autopsy reports and that sort of thing. But the average interval between the birth of the uh, child and the death of the previous person is only four and a half years. So it tends to be very recent lives. That's interesting. And have you had children that have remembered multiple uh, past lives? We have, uh, um, most of them don't, mm -hmm. um, but occasionally there'll be kids who will talk about two lives, usually one of them in much greater detail than the other. Uh, they may just sort of mention a, a second past life sort of in passing, but it's, it's usually memories from one of them that is, is kind of uh, stuck with them and, and kind of driving them. Um, you did mention, and I'd love to briefly talk about it, birth marks or birth defects um, that can be a, a, a trait. Um, I think there was a case of Sam whose grandfather had died. That was mm -hmm. an interesting case. Do you mind just briefly talking about that one or any other birth uh, marks or defects you'd like to talk yeah. about? Um, right. Well, uh, Sam's case, or the one I'm thinking of, actually did not have a birthmark or birth defect. But so um, Ian Stevenson, again, my mentor, he, he had quite a successful career actually in psychosomatic medicine before he got involved with this work. Mm -hmm. So the, the linkage between mind and body. And um, when he started hearing about these cases where the children were born with marks that, that seemed to have come from the past life, he, he was really fascinated by them, studied hundreds of cases, and eventually published a, a book of 200 cases that was 2,000 pages long. It's, it's a wow. two-volume set. Um, and some of them, with the, with the birthmarks, they tend to be uh, fairly kind of unusual birthmarks, not ones that you know, many people have. Um, he listed 18 cases where the children were born with double birthmarks, ones that matched uh, two birthmarks that matched both the entrance wound and the exit wound on, on uh, somebody who had been shot and killed. 
Um, and also, I mean, there are cases with missing fingers or missing limbs, um, just all kinds of various things that usually match with the fatal wound that the previous person experienced. And it, it seems, at least the way we kind of put it together, that the sort of the trauma of that um, affected the consciousness and that those images were carried with the consciousness to essentially to the developing fetus and then showed up as a defect. So it wasn't necessarily literally the injury on the previous body, but more of the, the image of that that the mind would carry with it to the next child, uh, to the next life and, and the developing fetus. That's so interesting. Gosh, that up, opens up so many <laughs> more questions. I mean, I guess characteristics and traits, but how how incredible is our consciousness that it can has it have a transference through lives and that emotional impact? Do you mind just discussing how, I, I guess, from previous lives, but not only characteristics and traits, but how the etheric body or our consciousness can affect lives? Well, that's a big topic. Oh gosh, I'm um, trying to keep it small here. <laughs> Just um, whatever you feel comfortable yeah. with talking about. <laughs> well, the, so, you know, there are cases where the children have at least some characteristics of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And in our cases, um, in 70% of the cases, a previous person died by some sort of unnatural means, meaning murder, suicide, combat, accident, that sort of thing. So that seems to be an important factor in even the memories being carried over. And, you know, sort of like in this life where unfortunately traumatic memories will often, a person will carry them with them, would love to be done with them, but they still carry on. And, and it may be that that trauma carries on it. And therefore the other details from the life sort of carry on with it as well, you know, across lifetimes. Um, we've also looked a little bit at sort of personality features and, and that's something that we need to explore more, but it looks like there's at least kind of a correlation between personality features of the previous person and the child. Um, Ian Stevenson argued that past lives should be considered a, a third factor in the development of personality that clearly genetics and environment play a big part, mm -hmm. uh, but that past lives can also uh, play a part that we don't come into this life with sort of a blank slate um, other again than genetics but that the consciousness can carry with it certain patterns that, that then affect how the personality develops yes of course there's many factors and and I know you've documented cases of children that have obviously experienced their own death, but also the gestation period and the moment of conception. That's very interesting as well to have those pre-birth memories. Do you mind just briefly discussing that? Yeah, sure. So about 20% of children will talk about events between lives um, after the previous person died, before they were born. And it varies actually the kind of things they describe. Some of them more or less describe a near-death experience of floating above the, the body and then often encountering um, other kinds of guides or beings. Um, some of them will talk about this other realm like heaven. The, the American kids may use the word heaven. And then some of them will talk about either choosing their next parents or being guided to their next parents. 
or observing their next parents. So in James's case, he said one day that he, he told his father he was glad that he had picked uh, his mom and dad to be his parents. Mm. And when his father asked him what he meant, he said, yeah, I, I saw you. Uh, you were in Hawaii at a big pink hotel and you were eating dinner on the beach and I decided to come to you. Well, it turned out that his parents, uh, before James was born, had in fact gone to Hawaii and stayed in a big pink hotel. And the last night of their trip, they uh, had dinner on the beach. Um, and that was the time when they started uh, trying to conceive. Uh, they didn't actually get pregnant for a couple of months, but that was when the intention began. And that was what James described as, as when he chose to, to come to them. Uh, and, and we've had other similar kind of reports where there are verified details that the children give that do, in fact, the parents can confirm that, in fact, they did do those things. Very interesting. And I guess my other question is, why is it more prevalent, the memories in children, than uh, remembering as an adult your past life? And sometimes, as you mentioned, they do diminish as, as we mature. Well, it seems that the kids, most of them, more or less bring the memories into the life with them. I mean, mm -hmm. by the time they get old enough to, to talk, um, they start talking about this. So the, the average age when a child starts talking about a past life is 35 months. So it's usually two or three. Now, sometimes there are exceptions. Um, sometimes with the older kids, something seems to spark the memory. You know, they'll, they'll see something uh, or go somewhere and then suddenly they'll kind of remember, but usually it's very young kids. And typically by the time, again, they're six or seven, uh, they, they've stopped talking about these things. Well, that's the same age that all of us lose our memories of early childhood. Mm. Um, so, you know, if a two or three-year-old, if, if there's a, uh, say a neighbor where the child knows the neighbor is clearly in their long-term memory, uh, but if that neighbor moves away, by the time the child's six or seven, usually they, they no longer are able to at least retrieve those memories. Um, so to sort of make sense, I mean, it does make sense as, as we lose our memories of early childhood, that these memories would, always, uh, would also fade uh, along with those. Uh, now, again, traumatic memories may last longer. Uh, if the two families, if the child's family and the previous family, if they establish a connection and their visits back and forth, that can keep it going longer. Um, but typically they just kind of fade away. Um, and, you know, just as in adulthood, it's very hard to retrieve a memory from when you're two or three. Uh, it's very hard to retrieve the memory of a past life, uh, you know, with occasional exceptions. But, but for the most part, it, it seems like um, uh, there's a very narrow window when people have access to those memories. Interesting. This is going to segue me onto a very interesting topic you talk about in your book, the concept of time, which is just fascinating and how that relates to past life memories. Um, without getting too scientific, do you mind discussing it? <laughs> well. Okay, be scientific. Whatever, say whatever you want. <laughs> it is absolutely fascinating how you do talk about it, though. Oh, right well, yeah. Time doesn't work the way we think it does as far as how events occur in time. And yeah, I get into this toward the end of the book and, and 
you know, some people, some people's cup of tea and others not, but it, it seems that our world and our reality, essentially events only occur once they have been observed. And, and that applies for past events as well as current ones. And there are what's called delayed choice experiments in quantum physics that demonstrate that the decision uh, a researcher makes about the path of a particle determines what path it took in the past. Um, so, you know, we think of everything being kind of completely linear, that if, if we um, say observe a, a star uh, where the light came, I don't know, 400 light years away or 4 million light years away, that, that it was doing that all along. But actually until it was observed, it was just one potential that could have occurred. And um, it, it gets mind boggling fairly quickly to think about this, but just to, I'm not a physicist by any means, but Max Planck, the founder of quantum physics, said that he regarded consciousness as fundamental and thought that uh, matter was derived from it. And I, I think that's true. I really think that our world, the basic building blocks are observations and knowledge uh, rather than waves and particles or anything like that. So until something becomes observed or becomes known, it really hasn't occurred yet. It's just that we, we gradually learn the past, uh, what we perceive as the past. Um, and it's been kind of more or less in suspended animation and until it does get observed. Uh, I, I know that gets, I may not be doing a great job. You're doing a good job, you are. And, and it, it gets um, quite hard to, to wrap our minds around it. Um, now in these cases, you know, people wonder a couple of things. One, can you remember a future life? And two, can you have somebody who's deceased and a medium talks to them? Can a medium access somebody who's died if they've already been reborn into another mm -hmm. life? To answer that one first, um, I think this space-time and this reality is may well be different from other kinds of reality. So if in fact we do survive death, there is this kind of larger part of us that is separate from this space-time world, even if a part of us comes back and, and lives another life. Um, so it would be at least theoretically uh, possible to communicate with the deceased while they're also, they have been reborn. Uh, the other question about, can you remember a future life? Well, we don't have any cases, as far as we know, of a child reporting a future life. So we don't have cases of children talking about flying in spaceships or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. might hold in the future. Um, but those cases are probably less likely to be reported to us to begin with. The children, I mean, the parents just assume that the child is fantasizing. And also especially in the Asian cases that Ian studied in these villages, um, things change very slowly. So if you have an unsolved case, a case where we haven't been able to verify a specific deceased individual, it's not inconceivable that the child would be remembering a, a future life where things more or less look the same as, you know, as they do now or in the past. Um, but for whatever reason, we don't have 
clear cases of, of that. So it, it um, may be an example of how time moves forward rather than backwards. And of course, the, the future memory it would be impossible to validate, I guess. Just backtracking. So uh, everything is a projection of our consciousness. So the past life memories of the children, are they actually happening now? <laughs> well, that gets, again, and pretty quickly into mind-boggling territory. Okay. I mean, if, you, if a child, for instance, James Leininger talked about it, life of a World War II pilot, well, For now, for he and his family and all of us who learn about it, um, it, it becomes uh, a reality to us now. Mm -hmm. To James Houston's family, it was something that obviously that happened in the past. And I mean, people have explored whether we all live in the same reality or is it just sort of intersecting realities um, so I to be honest I don't have a good answer to your question uh, is the past life happening now um, it happened in the past and it's becoming known now so there may be the answer may be um, um, yes and yes both in the past and in the present I only ask because you just spoke before about uh, the experiments and until we actually recognize something or experience it, it hasn't actually come into matter or into form. That was the only reason I asked that question. Yeah, and, and sort of the classic explanation in quantum physics is what's called collapse of the wave function. But once something gets observed, then it's sort of there are multiple potentials and they all kind of snap down into place where there's just one that actually happened. So in that case, you know, the pilot's family would have observed that he was killed, got that information. So that would have caused it to become uh, the, the reality, you know, that James Langer then accesses 50 years later. Um, but again, there are people kind of question even if, if that's true, where, where there's only the one outcome that occurs. Then I guess if everything's in consciousness, how in, well, in your expertise, how did his consciousness access those memories? Well, there are different explanations. I mean, the most straightforward one is that he lived that life and then when he was born here, uh, the memories carried over in his consciousness and, and then he recalled them. People have proposed other possible ones. And, and some people speak of the Akashic records, which is sort of this um, um, all information um, ever. And that these children may be accessing that sort of or accidentally accessing the knowledge of the pilot's life, but not that. James actually experienced that life himself. People have also speculated, could in this case, the pilot's um, consciousness be kind of um, over James's consciousness 
So James thinks that it's memories that he's having, but actually it's, it's ones that he's sort of tapping into uh, from this deceased pilots. So there are various ways of trying to explain it. Um, but again, the most straightforward by far is when a child perceives something as a memory that it actually is a memory. Oh, gosh, I mean, this could open up a whole Pandora's box of questions. <laughs> but So you, you spoke about the soul. So accessing uh, deceased loved ones that have passed, for example, through a medium. So is it your belief that we transfer our lives with a soul, but there might potentially be an oversoul or an overarching soul in some capacity? Yeah, I mean, of course, this is purely speculation. Of course. But, uh, well, this but... interview is about you today, so. <laughs> and there's no right or wrong. Yeah, well, that's good. You can't that's get it wrong. Good. It's not a, yeah. it's not a quiz. <laughs> um, my thought is that we have this sort of larger self that is outside of this reality. And then there's sort of a part of us that participates in a lifetime, um, which some people might refer to say as the ego. And an analogy that, that I use in one of my books is that uh, being an actor where you play a role in one particular film and in that film, in that reality, you are that character. But then there's this larger self, the actor that will then play a different character in, in a different movie. Um, so we are both part of this lifetime, this experience, but there's also sort of a larger self that's separate from it. So that, at least these days, that's how I conceptualize it. Um, yes, very, very interesting. Um, so obviously it is your belief that we don't, it, we surpass our physical body once we die. We don't actually, our, our soul, our consciousness doesn't die. We have multiple lives and multiple incarnations. What, what is the point of it all? What, why are we here and why, do we, why are we having all these multiple lives? Uh, well, I think probably a, a more important way of describing that is how do we find meaning in each life? I mean, there's the overall kind of what is the point of life, uh, which you know, I guess people have been trying to solve for eons. Mm -hmm. um, and it may just be that life just is, I mean, consciousness just is, but that we each have an opportunity to find meaning in our lives. And, you know, people find it in different ways. I mean, many people find it through uh, the love that they share with their family or, or friends. Others find it in sort of good deeds that they do or accomplishments that they have. Um, and, some of which may be sort of an overarching uh, point is to simply have the experience and, and to um, gain from the experience. So to, to be present and, and experience all of these things and, and hopefully to grow uh, from our experiences. And, um, and so, you know, that, that's life. Mm -hmm. And, and I know in your book, you also talk about dreams and the significance of dreams of, mm. well, what, what is reality? But um, do you mind just discussing how important dreams are? Well, as far as our nighttime dreams, um, I mean, many of them, fortunately, are not important at all. So, mm. you know, all the crazy stuff that happens is, I think, just our minds, our brains 
uh, kind of um, um, putting all the stimulus together. Uh, now, dreams do seem to be a point of access for some people, for psychic abilities or for past life memories. So like with James Leinigan, he had these terrible nightmares. Um, but the other aspect of dreams that I do talk about is using our dreams as an analogy for what reality is, that it's like a shared dream, again, in the sense that in our dream world, something doesn't exist until we observe it or experience it. So, um, you know, if I'm in a dream and suddenly a, a bear shows up to attack me, well, that bear didn't exist until I see it in the dream. But to some extent, that's how our reality is. And until things are observed or experienced, then they don't exactly exist. Um, but what it means is it, it may well be sort of a shared dream where we're all kind of creating this reality together. So it, it's like our minds creating our individual nighttime dreams, except it's something we're all working together. Um, and we each sort of in a mosaic where we each have our different experiences and, and then they kind of add, all add up um, to what we think of as our world. Mm. And I mean, many people don't even remember their dreams. So they're probably thinking, well, that's great. I don't remember any of my dreams. Do we? Yeah, which I think, I mean, I think it's fine. Uh, many of us remember much fewer of our dreams as we get older, um, you know, which, which is fine. I mean, I, mean, I think what's, um, I mean, again, dreams can provide useful information. They can also provide a lot of crazy stuff. Um, but, but again, the, the larger point kind of I'm trying to make is, is that just as our individual consciousness creates our nighttime dreams that our, our shared consciousness, all of us put together, uh, seem to create this reality. And, and likewise, in dreams, you know, even though my mind is creating, and I know it is, I don't have control over my dreams. I mean, I, you know, I often, I wish in my dream that, if, if I'm in something bad, if I'm being chased by a bear, well, I wish I could just fly away, but it doesn't mean I can. And in the same way, even though our observations are in a way our, our minds are creating this reality, it doesn't mean we have total control over it. Um, it just means that, that we're all creating it. And even in our awake state, I, I do believe that for the most part, we do create our reality through our observation and consciousness as well. Well, that's right, and and it begs the or ask it causes us to ask the question: Can you alter your consciousness in a way that alters your experience of reality? And you know, if we approach things, for instance, in a more kind of positive or optimistic way, does that lead to better outcomes? And often it does. I mean, not in a paranormal way, but just in a normal way. Uh, but uh, I also think that mind plays a bigger part in, in the things we experience maybe than, than we fully know. So um, being more optimistic may in fact help you have better outcomes. And I have to ask the question, have you had any past life memories? I have <laughs> not. Um, and of course, again, if I did, I may well have forgotten. Them. So you know, we certainly have cases where but we're now doing a study where we interview adults who we originally studied as children. And um, 
many of them have have no memory at all of ever talking about a past life or remembering a past life. They only know it because their families told them about it later. Um, so anyway, uh, no, I have not had any memories of a past life. Many people have said to me they'd love to remember their past lives. I won't even ask, tips is not the right word, but what is your advice if they'd like to um, potentially tap into their past lives? Well, my advice, to be honest, is to focus on experience in this life. Uh, that, you know, those things are likely forgotten for a reason because we don't want them to overshadow this life. Um, now, there are people, for instance, with, with sort of unexplained phobias or that sort of thing who wonder if they come from past life trauma. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those people try hypnotic regression, past life regression. Um, we're pretty skeptical, actually, that most of the time that they're truly recalling a past life. Uh, but that work may be, it may be therapeutic, actually, it may help them process it. Sorry, is this in the regression sessions? Yeah, the regression yeah, okay. sessions may be therapeutic, but but it doesn't look like, for the most part, we have any reason to think that they're actually recalling a genuine past life. Yeah, yes, a few people have said that. Well, it's definitely a scientific approach. Hmm. I've loved speaking to you. Is there something you'd like to talk to the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you? Well, um, I mean, some parents ask, what do I do if my child starts talking about a past life? And basically our, our advice is to certainly be open and respect for what, for what the child is saying, uh, not necessarily to get too over eager and start asking a lot of pointed questions, which can be upsetting to the child or may also lead the child to start making stuff up. Uh, we do ask for parents to write down what their children say. Uh, because if, if they eventually give enough details, and we love to have a written record of the child's statements so we can try to verify the past life. Um, and again, as I was saying earlier, for, for the parents to convey to the child, um, I hear what you're saying. I'm sorry that, that you have these terrible memories, but, but you're safe now and, and we're gonna enjoy this life together. Um, we'll, we've got some further pieces of advice are on our website if people are interested, but, but that's sort of the, the general advice that we give to parents. Great advice. And for anyone that's listening or watching, all your details will be in the show notes, yeah. um, including the link to your new book. Dr. Jim Tucker, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's, it's been great talking to you. And what wonderful research you're doing. And I just love your passion for it. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I feel very fortunate to be in a unique position to be able to do this research. It's amazing. It's amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. Bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.